0: Following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Great to see everyone. How are we doing? Great. Great. Um, my time this week has been a little different as I've prepared for tonight and, and the teaching through, well, our third week, I guess, in, in the Bifaith series. Um, some of the things I did that were normal were I spent some time, searched a lot of commentaries, and those are just uh, reading a lot of things that Christian scholars have to say and their thoughts on this passage as we work through Romans 11. Uh, I listened to a couple of sermons. I spent some time in prayer and, and, and some deep thought, thinking through the passage, spending the week just trying to keep my heart and mind open to listening to God, hearing God. and And then what I did, what was a little different from normally was then I, I went into my son's room and, and kind of raided his, his bookshelf that consists of you know nursery rhymes and uh, bedtime stories and, and found the, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible and the Big Picture Bible and started to read through those stories of the story of Noah. And uh, we've talked about Abel and Enoch, and now we come to the story of Noah. And here's what I found from all my study and preparation, that this story is not a kid's story at all. It is uh, by far the most explicit example in all of the Bible of God's wrath on mankind. It is gruesome. It is sad. And the more that I, the more time I spent reading through the Scripture and the story through Genesis six and through nine, the more I read, the more I listened, the more I thought. Even reading these stories from my son's bookshelves, I became more and more sad. Afraid, grieved. And so I really come to you tonight with, with a heavy heart, with a sad heart, um, because this story is, is horrible. It's just a horrible, horrible story. Um, so, you ready to talk about Noah? <laughs> Let's do it. We know the story, right? Um, this is one of the, if, if you went to Sunday school, this is one of the first stories that you learn. If you've never been to church up until your maybe adult life, um, it's still, you probably know a little bit about Noah. He built a big boat in the desert. He saved his family. God flooded the earth and killed all of mankind and spared eight people and then started over with those eight people. Um, Genesis 6 through 9, uh, four full chapters are dedicated to the story of Noah and the flood. It's a, a large portion. It's an important part of scripture. Um, Not more important than other parts of scripture, but very useful and I encourage you to read through it sometime. Our life groups this week, Monday, uh, tomorrow night with the girls and Wednesday night with the guys are going to read more of the story that we're going to read tonight. But Hebrews 11 verse 7 gives us a snapshot of Noah and the flood and a brief snapshot of the faith that Noah had. And that's where we're going to spend our time tonight. So let's read that verse. Uh, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It's printed in your bulletin. Uh, feel free to follow along. Here's what it says. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, com- he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The story of Noah and the flood is what I'll call a caricature. Do you know what that is, a caricature? If you go to fairs or carnivals or uh, anywhere where they have a lot of tourists, Disneyland, whatever, they'll have these people painting these pictures of caricatures. So they'll, they'll sit down and um, they'll paint this picture. And what they do is they accentuate features on your face um, that... You don't think maybe are there, but they see it and they blow it out of proportion. And you look at it and it just looks so bizarre. Uh, Mine always come out looking like either Tiger Woods or Adam Sandler, uh, you know, with the big forehead or the curly hair or whatever. And saying, that's not me. Well, this passage is kind of like a caricature. What it does is it's going to accentuate some characteristics of God. And it's going to really, in dramatic fashion, it's going to blow, not out of proportion, but it's going to blow in proportion so that we can see what is God like What is his character like? What is his nature like? What is his personality like? How can we respond to him? And so it's in dramatic fashion this story is going to give us a a real picture of God. We're going to see his intense hatred of sin and the necessity that God has as a holy and righteous and perfect being to do something about it. We see his gracious mercy to Noah and his family to spare them. We see in dramatic fashion, the reward, the very tangible reward that there is for faith, literally salvation. And we see a fear of punishment, hope in God's provision, uncertainty for what life is like after the flood. And looking at all those things, it's it's exhausting. The story is exhausting. That's why I come to you saying that I come to you kind of with a heavy heart is reading and thinking and praying and studying and it's like, This is just, there's just so much. It's so exhausting. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to see faith through the eyes of Noah. And so that's what I want for us tonight, is to to look at the life of Noah and and see faith in our life through the lenses that he sees through. And so we see a few things about faith that I want to interact with. Um, If we live by faith, we see that it changes the way we think, it changes the way we feel, it changes the way we live. And those are the three things we're going to walk through. First, let's look at this. If we live by faith, faith is going to change the way we think. Put yourself in Noah's shoes. All right, I'm just going to go right there and put yourself in Noah's shoes. Maybe you've thought that way before if you've learned of this story and read through it and even thinking through it now, right now. What would it be like if you were Noah and God comes to you and says, in 120 years, this is what God said, in 120 years, I am going to kill everyone. But I want you to build a boat, and I want you and your family to get in it. And I want you to get all the animals, and I want you to get enough food for all the animals and enough food for you. And, and God goes through painstaking detail of how many levels it's going to be, how many inches the boat is supposed to be long, how many inches it's supposed to be wide, how many inches it is high. He goes through painstaking detail of everything that Noah is supposed to do. There's a lot of information coming his way. Imagine you're Noah. And the writer of Hebrews is clear to let us know that his faith, that Noah's faith stemmed from this information that Noah got from God. It stemmed from this warning that Noah received from God. And the foundation of our faith, if faith is going to change the way we think, the foundation of our faith is always in the understanding what God tells us. In order to understand what God was saying, he had to consider the warning. What did Noah think about? You can speculate, you can just think about that. What if you were in Noah's shoes and God came to you with this kind of warning? Are you going to think about your family? You know, God's going to kill everybody. And you're thinking about the future of your family. And you you think, I can save them. God's given me a way to save them if I build this boat. Maybe you're thinking about your neighbors. And you're thinking, God has not told me anything about them. They might die. What about people you work with? People you care about? People you love? It's likely that Noah had people in his life that he shared his life with, that he loved so much that God didn't say that he's going to save them, but he's only going to save his family. You're thinking about these people. What about, where am I going to get all this wood from? And how am I going to build this? And remember, there's no Home Depot, there's no Lowe's. You're Think about all these things. What is going through his mind as he's preparing to do something about the warning that God has given him? It's amazing. It's possible, some think, that up to this point, it has never rained ever in the desert. Some think that this was the first time it ever rained, that above the earth, above the sky, there was an expanse of water, and uh, underneath the ground there was this, there was just an abundance of water, and it had never rained, ever. No one has seen a raindrop, and Noah is now telling people, it's going to rain and it's going to flood the earth and everybody's going to drown and they're like drown you know what is that and what's water you know what's water coming from the sky it doesn't make sense you're crazy and so think of the ridicule think of the pressure think of the embarrassment the humiliation so god's telling noah something that's probably confusing to him probably very foreign to him probably hard to wrap his head around and in genesis 6:22 it says this very simply about noah he did everything that God commanded him to do. So God told Noah something, and Noah took it seriously. And our passage says this was an act of faith, to hear what God says, and to take it seriously as if your life depended on it, and to do everything that he commands us to do. When God speaks to us, think about the ways that he speaks to you, through, through the word, through scripture as you read it, and, you, and He's telling you something about yourself. He's, telling you, he's giving you instruction. He's giving you guidance. Maybe through a trusted friend that comes up to you and, and, and maybe offers some discernment or wisdom or encouragement or whatever it is. There, and, and you believe that this is consistent with what God says. Think about ways that God may work with your conscience through time of reflection and prayer. And you just feel a, a weight on your heart that God is asking you to do something. All of those ways that God instructs us and tells us to do it how seriously do you take that do you take it like noah took it what would it be like in your life if you truly hated your sin as much as god hates your sin like to have this view of sin the way that god did as he looks on the earth and it grieves him so badly that he has to do something about it and he has to wipe out everybody he has to kill everybody because that is how bad sin is. What, it, what, what would it be like if you and I looked at our sin in our life and took it that seriously? Would we do something different? Would we act differently? Would we take that warning any differently? What would it be like if you saw the, the promises of Scripture and, the, and that it says that the power of God by faith dwells in us and gives us the ability to resist sin, to enjoy Him, to find comfort in Him? What would it be like to really believe that and to live a life of faith knowing that God is with me. God dwells in me by faith. And that's enough to conquer sin, to avoid temptation, to live a life of joy in Him and all I do, to face temptation and to face trials of any kind and to experience it with joy. What would it be like to really believe that? Do you process information that God gives you with such urgency? I mean, I I would admit to you that I don't. I want to. I desire to. Maybe it would be different if God said, in two weeks I'm going to destroy the world. But what did he say? In 120 years. You know what I would do? I would say, well then I got got 119 years and, and 51 weeks to start to get serious. I mean, how hard would that be? But he took it seriously. Day one, he did everything that God commanded him to do. And how easy is it when God gives us, he convicts our conscience, he gives us his word, he gives us our friends, and we say, I know that there's something going on in my life that I need to surrender to God. And I'm working through it. And he's patient with me. And I know I'll come around to finally like, getting this under control. But it's just going to take some time. That's not dealing with it with such urgency that Noah did. So, do you spend time contemplating who God is and what he's like? This information that you gather and saying. This is something about God. This is something he's told me. This is something that he is like that I should dwell on. Here's an interesting thing. When in the New Testament, Christ calls somebody out on, as a la- uh, because of a lack of faith. You ever come across those passages in Scripture where it says, when Jesus says, you of little faith, or why did you have such little faith, or why don't you believe, or all of these things. Every time he calls someone out on a lack of faith, he's dealing with an emotion that they have. He's dealing with a fear or anxiety or frustration or temptation. And every time he goes to their faith and deals with what they're feeling, he directs it back to something that is true about himself. Something that is factual, something that is solid, something that is real, that he has revealed to them. I take, for instance, anxiety. In Matthew 6, when people are anxious, Jesus says, Consider the lilies of the field. And look at how they're clothed so well. And look at how much I I have done for flowers. And don't I care more about you? How much more will I take care of you and clothe you and give you the things that you need? And so when people come to God and say, I'm hurting, I'm anxious, I'm afraid of what's going to happen in my life. He doesn't say, he doesn't just merely say, I hear your feelings and let's talk about those feelings. What he does is he says, I want your faith to be rooted firmly in, in, in who I am and dwell on that truth, and dwell on that fact of who I am, my nature, my character. God addresses our anxiety by getting us to think deeply about who He is. Think about worry in Luke 12. He says, don't be worried. I care for you, and I know exactly what you need. What would it be like? Do you think we'd maybe worry less if we knew 100% that God cares for us and he knows our needs and, he just, and he's going to take care of us. What would it be like to really believe that truth? And so every time he points us back to that. What about weakness and temptation? I love in, in Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says, if you've ever been tempted, if you've ever felt weak, if you ever feel like you can't do it, what does it say? It says, consider Christ who was tempted just as you are. Consider Christ who was weak. And he gives strength to those who seek him. What we know of God, and I'm talking about doctrine, that's another way of saying the things that we know about God, the character of God, the nature of God, the truths about God, we call it doctrine. um, It influences how we feel. And if you feel yourself becoming increasingly anxious, increasingly afraid, increasingly uncertain, increasingly insecure... You need not to wrestle with your emotions. You need to wrestle with who God is and who He has told you that He is in the Scriptures. You see, Noah's emotion, Noah's fear was directly related to something that he knew about God. God revealed a truth about Himself and saying, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. And Noah reacted with, with an emotion, with an internal struggle and we should be that, that same way. And so, if we're walking in faith, our feelings will come, become increasingly in line with how God desires us to feel. So let's talk about that. Number two is, how does God desire us to feel? And if we live by faith, it will affect the way that we feel. We see something in Genesis chapter 6 that is easy for us to miss if we don't pay attention to it. Um, But it's worth mentioning. And here it is in verse verse 6, chapter 6. It says that when God looked on the heart of man, something happened. And it explains what happened to God when he looked on man. It says he was grieved to his heart. When he looked on the wickedness and the sin of the people on the earth, it said it grieved him to his heart. For times when it seems like God is kind of a force of nature or really far away, or he's this just spirit kind of hovering over all of creation, or he's not a real person, it's passages like this that remind us that God is alive, that he feels, that he has emotion, that he has passion, that he can be grieved, he can be saddened, he can feel sorrow and joy. Isn't that amazing? Have you thought of God like that? Do you know that God is like that? Do you know that when you and I sin, our sins don't just float up into the ceiling and get suck, stuck? sorry, They get stuck like on like flypaper or something. Oh, I sinned. It's out there. But Jesus took care of it, and therefore he's happy. When we sin, it grieves. It doesn't just go nowhere. It goes to the heart of God. It grieves him to his heart, even though he loves us abundantly. As he looked out on the world, it says that he had sorrow. It grieved him to his heart. God is emotional. God has emotions. Every emotion that you and I feel God has. Where do you think you got those emotions? Those emotions of pain, of, of passion, of joy, of happiness, of, of satisfaction, of contentment. Where do you think you got that from? We learn in Genesis 1 that God made us in His image. And that's part of being made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. That we have the capability of feeling, of engaging, of reacting. And so does God. Except God experiences all of that in perfect harmony. He never overreacts. He never punches a hole through the wall and says, I just needed to blow some steam, sorry I did that. He never does anything out of proportion to perfection. So when he reacts this way, it should show us that this is not an overreaction. This is a demonstration of the purity and perfection and glory and holiness of God. And our sin is important. Our sin is serious to look at. And I wonder, do, do you feel that way when you sin? Do you know that your sin does that to God? There's a couple ways of, of, of explaining that, I guess. I could stand up here and tell you, every time you sin, you make baby Jesus cry. <laughs> and what does that make you feel, right? What is the intention of that? The intention of that is to try to make you feel guilty, so that you don't, feel, so that you don't do bad things, so you don't make God cry. You picture a baby just crying, and you're like, I don't want to do that. It's sad. Or, I think more, more scripturally honest and authentic would, would say, that when we sin, We grieve the heart of God. And that's not to make you feel guilty. That's to to give you an honest picture of what God is like and what your sin is like and what my sin is like. That it's possible to grieve God. and, And our sins just don't go nowhere and float off somewhere and say, you know what, God's working on me, I'm a work in progress. Those things may be true. But we should take our sins seriously. And we should wrestle with it. When Noah heard this warning of God and he contemplated it and he thought about it, it rattled him to the, his core. And we looked at it Hebrews eleven seven, and this was a proper, reverent fear. He was not rebuked for it. If anything, that was the right response. It was the right emotion. It was the right feeling that he was, gonna ha- that he was supposed to have. To be, to be reverently afraid of what his sin could mean for his life. And that God, in his holiness, had the ability to, to do the same to him that he was going to do to everybody else. I remember the first time that I, I became aware that my actions could actually hurt my, my mom. That's something that I did actually like hit her heart and resonated in her heart. And I had a, I'll tell you the story in a minute, but it was just so bizarre. It was so weird to me. That, so, so the things that I do, let me get this straight. Affect you in a real way. I mean, I was. So here's the story. I was in fifth grade, and we lived close to school, <clears throat> so we walked. Uh, we walked to school every day. And uh, one day, and we kind of lived. It was a, it was a weird area. It was, it was in northern Kentucky, and it was a, a highly wooded area. There were there were neighborhoods and subdivisions and things like that. Um, it's a typical midwestern town if you've ever been there. But then there's areas where you parks and woods and forests and things like that. Uh, pretty much like the wardrobe in Narnia. This is what it looked like. No, I don't know. And it was in the middle of the winter. There was snow all over the place. And I went. I left my house in the morning, and I started to walk to school. <clears throat> and instead of turning right to go to school out of my house, I decided I wanted to spend the day a little differently, and I turned left, and I went in the woods. And I went there alone, and spent the whole day in the woods in the snow. Playing in the snow. And I thought, what I'll do is, I'll I'll keep an eye on my watch, and at 3 o'clock, I'll walk home with my book bag and everything and walk in the door like nothing's ever happened. It'll just be like I got home from school. And I'll be hungry by then, so I'll do that. I get home, and I come to the front steps, and I open the door, and guess who's meeting me at the door? My mom. And guess what she's doing? bawling her eyes out. And guess why? Because the school called and said, we're just checking up on P. We, we didn't get an excused absence. Is he sick. He didn't come to school. He's not in his classes. Right? She calls the cops. The cops are looking for me the entire day. And I see her face, and I see her a wreck. I feel so sorry now that I did this. I didn't get it at the time. And I'm looking at her, and the first thing I think is, the first thing I think is, Okay, I don't know if I can clean this one up. But then the second thing I think is, is why does she feel like this? Why does she feel so, why is she so overreacting about it? She thinks I was dead. She probably thought I was dead. That I was abducted. um, That I, I don't know. I mean, what's the worst thing that I could do, you know? There's some things I could have (laughs) done. No. But the whole entire day she's grieving over this. And I didn't understand that actually my actions could actually have an effect on her. And I'm not saying that God doesn't, when we sin, He doesn't know where we are. But what I'm saying is, it is right for us to consider our sin and know that it has an effect on God. Not that He's changed by it. Not that He's surprised by it. But that our actions and our thoughts, you know, in in Genesis 6 it says that He looked at the the thoughts of man. So not even the things that they were doing. The things they were doing were completely wicked, but it didn't even take an action. It just took the heart. It took the thought. That The things that we think and do and say directly affect God and grieve his heart. And I don't think we should underestimate that. When Noah heard the information that God was telling him, after understanding the implication of it, it just it shook him. It rattled him to the core. A right fear of God is a framework of true saving faith. True saving faith manifests itself in, in an emotion where we know who God is, we know who we are, and we know what we would be without him. We should think about that. I'm reminded of a story in, in Luke And it's a great story. It's where Jesus is on the cross and the two robbers are on either side of Jesus. And I want to read that. Uh, You can follow along. We should have it up on on the screen. Luke chapter 23, verse 35 says this. As the people stood by watching, but the, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself When you come into your kingdom. Look at what Jesus says. He said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Why does Jesus say it to that criminal hanging on the cross next to him? A guy who is convicted, probably red-handed. A convicted criminal hanging on the cross. And Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise what did this man do? You have two criminals, two sinners on either side of Jesus. One is rebuked and one is welcomed into paradise because there was this this foundation, this conviction in this man's heart that Jesus saw and it assured him that this man had saving faith. And it was the fear of God. He says, don't you fear God? Because this man had a right understanding of who God was. And he had a right understanding of who he was. He says, God is great, I am a sinner, and I need him. If I have any hope of salvation, if I have any hope of forgiveness for my sins, of my deeds in life, if I have any hope of any kind of comfort from the consequence of my life, it's in this man. And Jesus said, that's real faith. That's real faith. And you'll be with me in paradise. It's right for us to not only know the truth of God, but to interact with it in an internal way. And I encourage you all to think about that, to know what the Bible says and say, this is what the Bible says, but then to wrestle with it internally. And to think about it, okay, well then what does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for how you feel and how you act? What does it mean for how you treat others? It's not one thing just to know God's word, it's another to actually believe it, to own it, and to do it. Faith changes the, the way that we think. It changes the way we feel. What would it look like for you to engage your heart in the Word of God? Not only your minds, but to engage your heart. Have you ever been so convicted of the love of God for you that it brought you to tears? That it brought you to such humility that you could just barely speak When Jesus came to Jerusalem the week before he was crucified it said that he came to the city and he wept over it because he saw their hearts that they were lost and they were needed a shepherd and he knew that he was that shepherd and his heart's broke for them because he loved them so much and he feels that way about you and for me and for your neighbors and your friends, that his heart is broken over sin? Has your heart ever been broken over your own sin? Has your heart ever been broken over the sins of others? That's a lot harder to do, isn't it? It says that in its time of 120 years, Noah didn't only build a boat, but he also spent time preaching righteousness and preaching repentance to people. And guess how many people heard Noah in 120 years, believed his message and says, yes, I'll follow you. Zero. No one, not a single person, came to repentance in that time. How heartbreaking is that? Do you think that that bothered him? Do you think that that terrified him? Do you think that it moved him to tears? Every night maybe. Maybe you know, thinking and crying with his family, saying, why don't they believe? Why don't they come and be saved and be rescued? Faith changes the way we think, the way we feel, and thirdly, it changes the way we live. And here's this, the way we live is changed because we have faith. Faith is not a one-time act, it's a commitment. It is a 120-year commitment. For 120 years, Noah committed his life to obeying God, to building this boat, to preaching righteousness. And I don't know anybody who's ever lived 120 years. The point is, is that true faith changes the way we live our life. That it's not like, alright, I believe in who Jesus is, I've accepted Him as my Savior, I trust in Him, and so now let's just coast through life. But it's a commitment. You know, commitment is pretty low, I think, these days, and in a lot of ways. Some are superficial, some... Um, not so superficial, but I would say that we're a generation that can do a lot better. And when I say generation, I say, okay, everybody here. We're a kind of people that can do a lot better when it comes to commitment. Um, I mean, think about it. Everything comes with a 30-day free trial, doesn't it? You can try everything. You can try out and say, before, before I commit to this, I want to experience the reward First. And after experiencing the reward, then I'll make a commitment to say, yes, I'm all in. And isn't that way we we deal with so much and we deal with friendship that way? And I think it's easy to approach our relationship with God and our faith that way too. So we approach God and we say, God, I want to give my life to you completely, but let me see a glimpse of the reward first. Let me see a glimpse of that you're going to follow through on your commitment and then I will follow through on mine. And that's not what true faith is. It's not this 30-day trial. Because look at the reward that came for Noah. Did it come before his commitment? Or did it come afterwards? Boy, it came a long time afterwards. But that commitment was, well, it was kind of, it was the commitment. It was life. And it was life not only for him, but for his family and it was a covenant with God that God promised to be with him and to never do that again. And he put a rainbow in the sky. And, and every time you see a rainbow, I want you to remember this, that God is committed. That God holds nothing back. That his sign of the rainbow was, I will, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never do this again. You have my word. And he desires us to approach him in that same way. To say, this isn't just a fluke. This isn't just a seasonal thing. I'm committed to this relationship with you. And real faith will change that. It will change the way we live. There's a true urgency and thoroughness to do what God tells us to do. Uh, Not partially, not slow, not half-hearted, not argumentative. I mean, think of all those things. When God tells us something, we either argue with him and say, do you really mean that? I mean, can you give me a little more time? He tells us to do something, or we maybe do it partially. So we obey him kind of half, halfway. Or we do it slowly. Uh, Disobeying God, if he tells us to do something tomorrow, but we do it the day after that, it's still disobedience. See, Noah says, did everything that God told him to do. Real faith, for you and I, is not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong commitment. So I've talked a lot about the flood, and and I want to end with this as we close. I want to end with what happened after the flood. So all of this has been up to the flood. We see that God grieves our sin, that we should thoughtfully engage in God's word, think about it, that it should move us internally. We should wrestle with it. We should ask questions like, God, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for how I live my life? What does it mean for how I treat others? And now I want to look at what happened after the flood. Put yourself in Noah's shoes again. The water's gone. The boat has landed. The door opens, right? You get out of the boat. What do you do? I mean, I would just feel like the most awesome guy around. You know why? Because literally I would be, because no one else is there. But you would just come out and say, you would look at your wife and say, well, you really married the right guy, didn't you? <laughs> Now, it was because of Noah's righteousness and Noah's faith that everybody else got to tag along. It didn't say anything about the faith of his family. It says, so God said, Noah, because of your faith, take your wife, take your sons, take their spouses, and everybody's safe. So because of Noah's faith, everybody else got to reap from that benefit. Because of his righteousness, everybody got saved. How awesome would that make you feel? To know that, you know, I'm the best husband there is. You look at your your sons, and say, who's your daddy, right? <laughs> you look at your son's wives and say, you know, uh, that's right, in-laws are the best, you know, don't ever forget it. I mean, it's just, he could have done all that, but, but he didn't do that. He got out of the boat, and the first thing he did was he got a bunch of animals, pure animals, it says, blameless, uh, flawless, without blemish, pure, perfect And he began just slitting all their throats. I told you this story is exhausting. It just keeps going on and on. Why does he do that? It says he built an offer and made a sacrifice to God. (sighs) Because this is what Noah was feeling when he got off the boat. God, I can't believe you love me this much. God, why did you do this for me? God, I don't deserve this. And he comes out and he looks at the entire world and it's quiet. Why? Because everybody is dead. And God in his love and in his grace said, Noah, I'm going to make a promise with you. And after all said and done, Noah comes out and I bet he is just floored. I bet he is humbled. I bet he is so broken. Because you know why? Because he knows he doesn't deserve it. So he doesn't come out boasting. He comes out broken. And he sacrifices animals. Now this is before the sacrificial system. This is before God told him to do any of that. He says, I can't believe my family and my wife and my kids are with me now. I can't believe you would be so kind. I can't believe that you continue to bless me. He comes out of the boat and God says, be fruitful. Multiply. I'm recreating. The earth is yours. And he, and he thinks, why me? What have I done to deserve this? Because he knows in his deepest heart that he belongs with everybody else that got wiped away. Genesis 6, where it says that God looked on Noah and found favor with him, is the first time we see that word grace. That Hebrew word means grace, it's translated in, in my Bible as found favor. It's the first time that we see this word that God would show favor to a person that they did not deserve and use that word. And we see it continually through the Old Testament and the New Testament we see it. That someone would be, would be blessed not because of what they did but because of God's kindness. Every time we see sacrifice in Scripture it's supposed to point us to Jesus. Jesus is supposed to remind us of Jesus. Noah spent the first day of his life off the boat, shedding blood of animals. And when Jesus started his ministry, John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Before the flood, there was sin, and God killed all all the people. After the flood, sin didn't go away. You know, it's, So the first thing Noah did was make a sacrifice. You know the second thing he did? He built a vineyard. Do you know what the third thing he did? Made wine. Do you know what the fourth thing he did? Got drunk. You can read it. That's exactly what happened. You know what the fifth thing that happened? You, you'll have to read to find out. <laughs> and what we see is sin was rampant before, and guess what? Sin is, is rampant today. And God in His provision provided a boat for Noah, saying, you can be saved, believe in what I've said, trust in me. And God in His provision provides you and I salvation. He provides for us Jesus. And John the Baptist says, this guy's going to die and shed his blood so so that sin can be destroyed. And He calls us to look at Him and to... I'm about to say something really cliche. Get on the boat. I'm sorry. (laughs) I promised I would never say something like that, but it happened. He invites us into that. And how do we get that? It's by faith, the same way Noah did. Look at all of mankind. The way that we earn this is not by what we do, but by faith in what God has done. God hates sin just as much today as he did then. And he's provided for us, you and I, a relationship with Him, and salvation from that sin in Jesus. Don't you believe that if God was willing to slaughter His very own Son on the cross for you and for me, that He has left no other option? There's no other option. There's no other boat coming. There's no other way than Jesus. So He calls us to turn to His Son, and to repent and to trust in Him. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.